Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's. The initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order. And yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Welcome back to She Dynasty. We are here today with Rosie O'Neill, the co-founder and CEO of the iconic luxury candy brand, Sugarfina. I love that candy is now considered a luxury item. Rosie launched Sugarfina in 2012 with her co-founder and then-fiancé Josh. Together, they dreamed up a candy boutique for grown-ups. Since launching, they've grown Sugarfina to over $50 million in annual revenue and have over 40 stores. Rosie was named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People and one of Goldman Sachs' 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs. Rosie and her team are disrupting the sweet space with an innovative approach to confections and retail. Hi, Rosie. Hi there. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. It's such a treat. Thanks for having me. You know, I made a point to go to your store um, last night after work. I just wanted to kind of walk around and see what was happening. I'm there a lot because I'm at the Century City Mall and my kids cannot walk past your store without saying, mommy, I need a free sample. And I always feel so guilty, but I let them go do it. But wow, do they have an affinity for the brand because of that super smart little strategy that you have? Well, thank you. Sorry for tempting them. Oh, no, it's amazing. But you know, every probably third time we're there, I break down and buy them Hmm. something, but you can't resist just because everything is so wonderful. (laughs) Sugarfina. Wow. What an incredible company you have built. It's, um, you know, one of those companies that just brings joy to your heart just because candy is just such a happy place. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. It was an easy industry to get into because it's like it just tapped into this thing I've always loved since childhood. As you know, She Dynasty is a lot about your journey of how you got to where you are. And um, that's what my audience really wants to hear about. And you've had a really, really interesting journey. So I want to dig in a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where were you born? Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So I was born in Kansas City, but I only lived there for about a year. So my parents moved out to California. You know, I am the oldest of six kids, big family, lots of craziness going on. Um, But I loved SoCal, and I've had a really hard time leaving. So I've pretty much been a California girl for most of my life. And what did your childhood look like? Can you paint a picture for us? We lived in uh, a little house in uh, Norwalk, which I'm not sure if you know where that is, but it's like a outskirts of Los Angeles. I was kind of like one of those shy sort of introverted kids where I love to just like make things and create and like somehow I managed to like start this whole babysitting business, you know, on the side. And I just I think um, I wasn't necessarily like entrepreneurial from a young age, but I sort of had the little sparks of that, like really loved this idea of kind of working, creating things for myself. Right. I hear so many stories on She Dynasty of women who were introverted as children and now running companies and corporations. I think it's encouraging for people to hear that. Well, yeah. And I mean, I am still introverted. Like that is just me. And I think that being able to just accept that that's who I am and, and then find ways to work in the business world through that lens. And, you know, it's not easy. I think a a lot of introverts think of things like getting up in front of a big group of people or having to run meetings or things like that. You know, you have to you have to know where your comfort zone is, but I've been able to find a good balance. Do you try to push yourself to do more things like that since you do consider yourself an introvert? I, I do, but I find that I can only kind of do so much in one day right. and then I have to take moments alone. Because right. it's not like it's not like I'm shy or afraid of speaking or anything like that, but it's more just my energy gets yeah. really drained. Understood. And then I have time to recharge. Awesome. What did your parents do for a living when you were a child? So my dad is a video cameraman, so he worked on like uh, TV shows and stuff like that. And then my mom is a stay-at-home mom. Got it. 
you said that you started working fairly young. So what did you do? What were some of your first jobs? Yeah, so first I started babysitting. I was probably 11 or 12. I think that's illegal now. <laughs> but is it? I don't know. Do I, you have to be like 14 I'm not or sure. something? I have I a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old, and my 15-year-old is dying to babysit. <laughs> so I'm not sure. Am I going to yeah. Everything's like... What we used to be allowed is not allowed anymore it's in so, anything in this it's world. It's so true. I know. I know. So like, so I started pretty young and then, um, you know, I just like amassed this huge roster of clients throughout our neighborhood. I like to joke that I had a babysitting cartel because, you know, no other babysitters could come into the neighborhood. I sort of own the neighborhood. But then, uh, you know, I started working like real jobs at the age of 15. I was a carny at the Orange County Fair. Mm-hmm. So What's a carny? The, I don't even know what that is. Like uh, people who work at the carnival. Oh, um, so, okay. So like making cotton candy or something? Yeah, yeah. So I worked at one of those food stalls and then, uh, you know, moved into like mall retail. And then I was a waitress at Ruby's in Orange County. So I pretty much did that all through high school. I think from a young age, I kind of needed to, you know, work to support myself and sort of set the stage for college and things like that. Right. So, so you were the oldest of six siblings. Yes. That's a lot of kids. It is. So yes. how did that kind of shape you being the oldest? Did you feel like you had more responsibility? You had to help mom a lot? Yeah. I mean, it definitely more responsibility. I think it also in some ways like contributed to my introverted personality just mm. because there was so much happening and so much going on all the time. Like I found really quickly at a very early age in life that I needed to retreat every once in a while, but it was fun. I mean, it's it's definitely fun to have so many siblings. You know, we're still pretty close now, and I saw all of them actually last week for my sister's engagement party. Beautiful. And so high school, were you a great student? Did you study hard? Were you a party girl? Yeah, no, I was a really good student. I worked really hard. And I was the type of kid who I'm sure teachers hated because I was like doing that night's homework while they were teaching the class oh, because I had to work. You were so that I didn't. Kid. Well, I did. <laughs> I mean, I like, I had to go to work after school. So I didn't really have a lot of time to do homework out of class. So I did a lot in class. All right. So from high school, you went to UCLA and you graduated in just three years, and you also work 20 to 30 hours a week. Why did you have such a rush to finish college so fast? Um, I mean, financial was kind of like a big driver behind it. You know, I wanted to not, you know, rack up too much debt. I also, I just, you know, I I loved school, and it kind of came easily to me because I was I was taking things that I really liked and enjoyed. Right. So I had the opportunity to just take a heavier course load, and I did, and it didn't really like impact me that much. So beautiful. And your major? Communication studies. Oh, it was at okay. UCLA. Yeah. So that gave you kind of a strong foundation for yeah. marketing. And yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, beautiful. After UCLA, you actually worked in marketing and PR for three years. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that time. Where did you work? What kind of roles did you have? So I had a few internships in college where, um, you know, I was working in PR and I started to learn like which aspects of PR I liked and didn't like. So I worked at a celebrity PR firm, hated that. That's not my personality at all. And then I started working with kind of like more brands and, and companies. So my first job out of college was a continuation of my internship that I had at the time. And it was one of the big PR firms. It was very corporate. I was working on accounts like I just wasn't passionate about like MaxiCare, which is an HMO. and the uh, California Smog Bureau for the Mm. Smog Prevention Program. So like very serious, not exciting, (laughs) not exciting at all. And then I sort of fell into a role at at a smaller kind of like boutique agency working on consumer brands. And that was where I just fell in love and realized, oh, I I need to work on brands. That's like, that's what excites me. So you did this internship, but then you went back to school to get an MBA? Yeah. So when I was working in PR, I was working with the brand managers on the client side. And what I started to learn was that what they were doing was really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to just do one aspect of marketing. I really wanted to own and run a brand. You know, the, the fastest path for that to kind of jump to that big level is to go back and get your MBA. So I was about 23. I went back to UCLA, as I mentioned. I can't really escape the warm weather of California. And then that was just a great, you know, kind of opportunity to step away and and learn more. And then I was able to, you know, make that career jump. Wow, you made that all happen so fast. I mean, the ambition at such a young age just to like get there and get it done and get it all like behind you is amazing. I like checking things off a list. I can tell, (laughs) which is probably why you are where you are today. So it seems like you put a lot of pressure on yourself just to check things off a list and get it done. You know, how does that affect your day to day or does it affect you? Is it what drives you? 
Um, I'd say I have a really strong work ethic, which I think has served me well. You know, I probably teeter on the edge of being a workaholic and not like in the way people say in interviews, but like genuinely, like maybe I have a problem with workaholism. Um, me too, but by the way. Yeah, yeah, right? You know, I think a lot of women do. I just love being busy and I love accomplishing things. And so for me, I'm not the kind of person who can just sit still and not do anything or coast through a job and not like try to keep climbing up levels. I just have this like need to keep moving forward. Can you tell me what work ethic means to you? Because I think it's different from generation to generation. And I'd love for people to hear from your perspective what it means to have a good work ethic. I think it's a combination of things. I think it's energy, focus, and time. And I'll say energy slash passion. Sort of that just wanting to dive in and being excited. A lot of people think of work ethic as, oh, you just work really long and hard. Right. And that I don't think that's actually it. Right. I think it's when you approach something with you are just so passionate to tackle it and so excited and you love it. And that really comes across combined with, you know, working probably longer and harder than other people do. But again, I think it's like the combination of those things that really is yeah. the magic. I totally agree with you. I think uh, a lot of people think that work ethic means, you know, how many hours you put in, but I'd much rather have an employee that's passionate and getting it done within the hours, you know, and if they're staying late, it's because they want to be there and they're excited about right. what it is they're doing. And it's not know, drudgery, exactly. right? Like when I think of when I'm working really long hours, it's, it's not because I have to, or I hate it. It's because I am excited and, and want to keep moving ahead. Talk to us about your kind of transition to work at Mattel. You started as an intern there? I did. So between your first and second year in business school, you do an MBA internship. And um, when I found out that Mattel was recruiting on campus and there were jobs on Barbie, uh, Barbie was like my total obsession as a kid. I think I had like 24 Barbie dolls. Right. And um, the dream home and the, the uh, VW bus. Right. And- yeah, totally. And I played with her for a very long time. I was like so enclosed for Barbie well into high school, which I'm sure was embarrassing now to talk about, but I loved it. And so, you know, that was the only job I applied to. I kind of like put all my eggs in one basket, but I think they could see how passionate I was and how much I wanted it. And I mean, I told them in the interview, I'm like, this is the only job I'm applying for because I wanted that badly. Oh, and that's so I think bold. that made an impression. That's a good strategy, actually. You're so yeah. passionate that they just feel bad they have to give it to right? you. Right? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I worked with them as an intern during the summer. And then actually they had a full-time role open up. And so normally you would like go away and finish your second year and then come back. But they asked if I could somehow work and finish my second year at the same time. And I said, I I can probably do that. I'll go to school at night and on Friday and I'll work full-time. And seems to be a pattern with you. (laughs) We'll make it work. Yeah. I like the idea of like kind of doing both at the same time. So what did you do as an intern to really make that? Um, love you? What kinds of ways did you go above and beyond? Well, as an intern, you're kind of doing two things. One is you're shadowing a brand manager. So you're essentially following them around and, and seeing everything that they do and then sort of being in some ways like their assistant. So if they're working on putting together a financial plan, you know, you're there helping them with some of that data analysis. And then the second thing is you do an, a group intern project. So we did a big project around the future of technology and toys. And I, again, I just, I like poured myself into that presentation. I had so much fun with it. And I think we did a really creative and really exciting presentation to the management group, you know, with all the bells and whistles and that kind of thing. And I didn't realize this at the time, but doing presentations and kind of having to stand up and pitch is a big part of that job. And so I think they saw like, oh, okay, she can stand up and pitch in front of an audience. And that helped get the job. Yeah. Talk about how important it is to be able to present your ideas in business, just in general, whether you you work for somebody or you own a company, because I think it's important for people to hear because, you know, there's a lot of people that have great ideas and even start things, but they don't understand how important it is to not only have the idea, but to go tell people about your idea, sell your idea, create hype and excitement about your idea. So talk about that a bit, especially as an introvert. Yeah, it's really important. And I'd say, um, I think some of the things that were tools that helped me were, 
I took an improv class and that actually was really helpful in kind of like loosening me up and helping me just be more dynamic in my presentations. And so even if like someone throws you a question that you're not expecting at all, you sort of have this ability to kind of navigate that and bounce back and not just like freeze up. I love that idea. I have a daughter who's really shy. I've never really thought about that. Yeah. That might be a great thing for her. It's totally great. And you know what I realized is actually a lot of actors are very introverted and sort of being on stage sort of is a way that they have permission to kind of be a different person. And so I've sort of found that for me, like I love presenting. I love doing, you know, media interviews and that sort of thing. But then I'm terrified of going to cocktail parties. Right. <laughs> so there's something so the about the like, part of it yeah, is a little yeah, harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. And then it's just all about repetition. Mm -hmm. You know, your first 10 times you have to do it are going to be like really painful and you're going to not do very well and be super nervous, but like it gets easier. You just have to keep practicing. I totally agree with you. So you actually um, finished school a quarter early. Yes. There's a trend here. There's definitely (laughs) a trend. Are you like in a rush to get somewhere at this point in your life? Are you just kind of, again, are ready to move on? So when I was in high school, um, it was around the time Doogie Howser was like a big thing. And I was like begging my parents to let me finish high school early because I just like I could have done it and I knew I could have done it. And I think they were very adamant about, no, you need to have like a normal life. And so I had this like really strong urge and I was sort of butting up against what they wanted me to do. And so I think it's just like. I've always had this desire to go faster and I think be able to accomplish more at a younger age. Are you the kind of person that by 9 a.m. you have three things already accomplished? Like you went to the gym. No, actually, (laughs) I'm the opposite. (laughs) So like these people who are like, yeah, I wake up at five, I meditate, I read a book, I cook a healthy breakfast and I go on a run. That's not me at all. Okay. What time do you wake up on the weekend? Like seven. Oh, that's early. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying I get out of bed at seven, okay, but I wake up at seven. Got it. Okay, so let's um, let's go back to Mattel. So you rose through the ranks pretty quickly and end up overseeing the entire kind of Barbie brand, correct? Yeah, I, I oversaw one segment of the Barbie brand. So essentially like core Barbie. So Barbie dolls, fashion, Dreamhouse, Ken, all that stuff. There were other Ken divisions. Too? Yeah, Ken too. <laughs> you got to be the boss of Ken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's other divisions like Barbie princesses and, yeah. and things like that. So I was more like a certain sector of Barbie. But that's like the prize, right? The- yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was like the core Barbie brand. That's kind of like a dream job, like if you think about it, like for a little girl who loves Barbie to like grow up and be, you were the director of marketing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a huge responsibility too, just because it's a brand that means so much to people. You have to be very thoughtful about what you do with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was always top of mind is not losing touch with what the end result is. The end result is a little girl playing out these dreams and aspirations, having fun. It's bringing a smile to her face. And so when you kind of keep that end in mind, there's days where there's drudgery, like there isn't any job, but that, that meaning behind it, I think really just brought a lot of passion and inspiration for me. Right. And I, I know you were there a while back, but I'm sure there was lots of talk even then about female empowerment and what Barbie meant in that aspect. What was the conversation there during the years you were there? What years was was it? Yeah, I was there from 2004 to 2011, so seven years. Okay. And then I actually oversaw Barbie's careers. So one of the things that I was able to do, which I was, you know, I, I feel proud of looking back. I think that there's sometimes a lot of conversation around what Barbie looks like and her figure and things like that. I actually think that's perpetuating the problem because we're just looking at her physical and we're yeah. not looking at, okay, well, it's not who are you wearing to the Oscars, but like, what do you do, you know? And so, you know, I launched Barbie as a computer engineer before all the STEM, you know, talk was really coming into place. Barbie as an architect, Barbie as a pilot, as a firefighter. I mean, these are areas where women are less than 5% represented. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm proud that we were able to show girls that, you know, they can be this and they can actually play that and act it out. So do you feel like you and your team actually were a big part of kind of a Involving the Barbie brand into more of the career space and what that meant to little girls? Yeah, it was a big push for us. And I think it really stemmed from, you know, you have a mom who has played with Barbie her whole life. Now she has a daughter. How do we connect those dots, but also make the mom feel good about 
buying a Barbie for her daughter because it can show her, oh, you can be a surgeon or you can be, um, you know, a pilot one day. Yeah. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I'm just curious just with how technology has taken over. And I'm sure the Barbie brands have done a lot in the tech space as well with, you know, different online apps. Mm -hmm. But if there's still that kind of passion and love that there was when we were kids, you know, just how it's evolved. It has evolved. I mean, definitely kids play with their iPhones and their iPads right. way more than toys, so sad. which I actually think is sad. I mean, I, it's going to be interesting to see how the generation evolves because I think we've stripped out a lot of creative, imaginative play. Beautiful. So you actually got married very young. You you met your first husband at age 24. Yeah, we met on Match.com. You know, I had just started business school, so I was kind of just in the thick of things. He was a great guy. We we married after knowing each other for five weeks. Wow. So it was definitely... Was it like love at first sight? Yeah, I mean, yes. And okay. I think I was at a time in my life where I was definitely like acting more impulsively than maybe and you I like would to do things fast. today. And we that, <laughs> right? We've established that. Um and I think for, you know, the period of time in my life, it was, you know, it was a really great relationship and it taught me a lot. And, you know, we were together for about four years. Um, I think when you get married that young, like people grow apart much more quickly than if you truly know who you are mm -hmm. before you get married. So, you know, ultimately it, it didn't work out and we split up, but overall it was a, it was a really positive experience. Obviously it's um, different for every individual, but do you think there's a perfect age to get married? Yeah, I'd say after 32. After 32. I know that's very specific, but for, like when I think of my life, I think that was when I was finally ready ready for that stage. Interesting. Yeah, I got married at 29 and I felt very grateful that I had my entire 20s to, to like date different people and have yeah. all these experiences. And I, you know, have friends that got married at 22, 23, and they have some regrets and yeah. they, they have a lot of wonder of what could have been. So interesting to hear. So um, you hit a little bit of a snag, or maybe maybe it wasn't a snag, but you got divorced at 28, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And was that a mutual? Was it two-sided, one-sided? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was. I I was more leading it, but I think it was something that we both realized just kind of just wasn't had working. to happen. Yeah, and you know it. Again, it was not like a big blown out right. fight or anything. It was, if anything, it was more just sad. So what'd you learn from that experience, just getting married so young and getting divorced? Well, I mean, a lot of positive things. Like, I think I really learned how to be a better communicator. I think I really learned what the right type of person for me is. And at that time, you know, he really was, I think, someone who is, you know, just a stand-up person and a good person. And sometimes people might appear that way on the surface and then you get to know them more and they're not. He really was, like, a very good person. Mm -hmm. And I think it taught me, like, not to settle, that there are really, really great people out there and you have to sometimes say no to something good to be able to pursue something great. All right. So three years later, there's kind of a big shift that happens. Tell us what happens next in your life. Around 2010, so I was still at Mattel at the time, I met Josh, who is now my fiance slash co-founder of Sugarfina. Um, How'd you guys meet? So we met on Match.com too. Wait, so hold on. Stop. <laughs> you met two husbands on yes. Match.com? <laughs> yes. Oh my we gosh. Have talked, we have talked to them about maybe doing something at some point, but you know, whatever. Like a collaboration? Um, or just like a TV commercial or something. I don't know. Oh but my gosh. Yeah, obviously not bringing the first husband in as well. That would of be course, a little weird. That'd be a little weird. But. <laughs> Wow, two husbands on Match.com. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean that's a per we don't they don't even need any more advertising than that. <laughs> I mean, it goes back to me being like introverted, right? I am not the kind of person who's putting myself out there and meeting people out in public. So it was much more like of a safe place for me to right. do that. But this was before you could swipe to the left and swipe right. to the yeah, right. Yeah, Tinder didn't exist. Bumble okay. didn't exist. Right. How long did you guys date? Well, we're still together. Oh, before, sorry. Oh. <laughs> How long did you guys date before you got married? Oh, okay. Um, so technically, we're still not married. We've been oh. engaged for six and a half years. Okay. <laughs> I kind of love that. We have been so busy with the business. We just, the idea of planning a wedding stresses me out. So we dated for about two and a half years, then got engaged, and now we're coming up on like our nine-year anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Together. Yeah. So what qualities in Josh um, did you see immediately that you knew he was the one? Well, at first and foremost, he's a single dad of three kids. And I think, you know, I actually reached out to him on Match. Um, so it was kind of like I did Bumble before Bumble existed. But he 
had these pictures of him and his kids. And it was just, it, when I was looking at them, there was this sort of weird gut feeling of, that's a good dude. That's my family. No, no, it was even deeper than oh, that. God, like, I just got chills. I know. Like, I remember looking at these pictures and being like, wait, I know these people are like, that's part of my future. And wow. I couldn't ignore it because it was like How just so instinctual. So at the time, oh gosh, I have to do math. Um, a little, at the just time, around. they were like, you know, they were preteen. So like hmm. 9, 11, 13, I believe. That's scary though, because that's a hard age. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky, I think, because he was a single dad. It was a little bit different than, right. um, you know, if there was like a very acrimonious yes. situation Understood. happening. And I think they wanted their dad to be happy, and so they were very welcoming. So I got very lucky. Beautiful. I remember when my dad got divorced, I was so mean to every woman that oh, came through the door. I mean, yeah. I felt so bad. Yeah. So. It's hard, though. I mean, as a kid, that's a lot to process, especially if your parents, there's the hope of them getting back yeah, together Yeah, for me, I think day. that was the issue. Was there was definitely, like, you mean that my dad's not going back to my mom. Yeah. So I had a hard time. That's hard. But we got over it. Now I have an awesome stepmom. So. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move on to one of the sparks in your um, journey. So your third date turns out to be a very magical turning point in your story. Tell us what happens on that third date. It was this super cute idea. I remember getting the text and he's like, hey, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is playing at this outdoor movie screening, the, the original Willy Wonka, so Got from it. the 1970s. Okay. He's like, do you want to like make a picnic and go? And I was like, oh my God, you're like my dream guy. That's like my dream date. So when that finally rolled around, you know, we packed up a big picnic, went and saw the movie. It was both of our like childhood favorite movie. Every child. Every right? child, Every right? Child. Um, and then after the movie, we just started at this brainstorm of like what why isn't candy magical anymore like the feeling we had about that movie as kids why do we just not feel that way about candy right. and where's the candy store for grown-ups and that was kind of like the spark of the idea that eventually became sugarfina so from there you know on all of our dates we'd be talking about like oh hey let's talk about this candy for grown-ups idea and right. he's an entrepreneur so he immediately goes to like let's start a company. <laughs> so literally like you drove home from the movie and you were, guys were talking about the idea. Like it's just started yeah. to manifest into something on the ride home. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like specifics, but it was right. more about why doesn't this exist and how come no one's come up with well, something like this? Well, that's how ideas start, right? Yeah. It's always kind of figuring out where there's kind of some um, white space right. and then figuring out how to fill it. But you know, it's an incredible thing to have the idea and then it's a, it's a whole nother level to then kind of, you know, act on it and yes. actually bring it to fruition. So congrats to both of you for doing that. Thank you. And what was Josh doing at the time? So um, Josh ran a video game company. So oh. he had just left. Um, so he was kind of taking a period of time off and just sort of, you know, figuring out what he wanted to do next. So it was actually like a good time for us to connect with each other. We started kind of just over the course of a year and a half putting together the idea and then ultimately I remember it was Mother's Day we sat down our moms and our dads because they were both there and told them that we were gonna I was gonna leave my job and go start a candy store with Josh and I think they were all thought we were crazy but we said you know just trust us. What we have in our head is really hard to explain because it doesn't exist in the world today, um, but it's going to be awesome. So, And what Sugarfina is today, because it's so visual and it's so beautiful, is that what you imagined? Is it is it exactly kind of what you were envisioning back then when yeah. you started? I mean, 100%. If anything, I think we were able to take it even further than what I imagined oh it could gosh. be. Oh my gosh. I love that. I want to kind of touch on this because I think it's important. You have an idea. And this is the part that I think a lot of people struggle with. Everyone has ideas. Mm -hmm. How many times have people said, I have a great idea for our company? Yeah. How do you move it from I have an idea to I'm making a decision to leave my company? Like talk about how that works in your brain a bit. What I would first say is a lot of people, I think, have a misconception of entrepreneurs. A lot of people think entrepreneurs are idea people. I don't believe that. I think entrepreneurs are builders. People who can either come up with an idea or hear someone else's great idea, but they can then take that leap of, I know how to bring this to life. Right. Um, that's the core thing. Right. Having a great idea is not the solution to becoming an entrepreneur. Right. I was getting to a point at Mattel where, you know, I was, it was an amazing point in my career. I, I had gotten to where I wanted to get to. I was really happy. I had a great team. But meeting Josh was sort of this epiphany for me of, 
like I fell in love with Josh very fast and I realized I was not in love with my career anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of had this like realization of I want to go do something dramatically different. Starting a company has always been like a I'll do that one day dream. And I'm I'm like, why? Well, let's just do it now. Give it a shot. If it doesn't work, I can always go back to the corporate world, but right, right. I'll kick myself if I look back on my life and I didn't do it. A lot of people listening are probably thinking, wow, she had this incredible job leading like one of the world's most iconic brands. I and mean, it's that's hard. It's a huge decision to leave something like that. I mean, when you gave notice, people are probably like, oh, what, you know, what brand are you going to now? And you're like my own. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. were you scared? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that I, it was less about scared, am I going to be able to put food on the table? Because I knew I had like enough skills that if I had no salary for a year, I would be okay. I had right. saved enough. And you enough have this up. like huge marketing background working on this brand. Yeah. So you could always, I'm employed. Yeah. I'm employable. You're employable. Exactly. <laughs> so that took away a base level of fear. Also, maybe because I had gone through college and high school and things like that so fast, I was like, well, I have a few extra years head start. So maybe I can lose a few years in the middle. You know, at a certain point, you just have to jump right. and you have to, accept that you have these fears and kind of like turn the chapter of fear and just jump off. Right. And so did you know anything about the world of candy? No. I mean, I ate a lot of candy. Like I love candy. But you didn't know how to make candy. You weren't like a secret baker at home, anything like that. Well, I love to cook. I love to bake. But I would say I was not going into that path by any stretch of the imagination. That wasn't the spark for the idea. So did you immediately surround yourself with people who understood the world of candy or did you start just Googling like, how do I make candy? (laughs) Yeah. So um, we actually don't make the candy. What we do is we partner with these artisan candy makers and we do what's called contract manufacturing. So we come up with ideas and flavors and shapes and recipes. They do all the production, which is like saves a huge, huge step of the process. Has it always been that way? Yeah, it always has. And do they have Oompa Loompas at their factories? I mean, yeah, you would think so, right? (laughs) (laughs) we visit their factories a lot and it's so cool the process of seeing it made because i think a lot of people when they think of candy they think of like mass production but the type that we're doing is actually very handmade so you know you'll have a guy making a batch of 40 pounds at a time like that's small batch and that's artisan and so is it made in multiple different places yeah so we work with about 12 different um, candy makers around the world so it's europe and you know uh, we have one in japan we have a couple in california everything's so beautiful i i'm obsessed i started on the champagne gummy bears obviously a classic that's our best seller i'm I, I can't get enough. It's funny because every time my husband doesn't know what to buy me, he buys me that. And it's just like... He's so smart. He's so smart. It's such a good <laughs> gift. And it makes it's just makes me happy. And it's awesome. I, I got to say, just being in your store, again, just like for me, who's such a visual person, like just I just walk in your store and just look at it. I, I remember um, a few years ago, somebody bought me one of those beautiful giant towers Oh, just like the the How most nice. the most expensive yeah. gift from you. It was um, interesting, and I wouldn't let anyone touch it for like oh. two years. <laughs> I'm like, don't. We're not eating it. Oh it's gosh. so beautiful because it's almost like art. You know, it's yeah. like it's it's kind of hard to like open it. You don't want to like ruin it. Yeah, I mean, and that's I mean, in a weird way, that's kind of what we want. We oh. want you to appreciate it with all of your senses. Yeah, and when I did finally open it, it was still good. And it, after two ate, years, I think yeah, that's I mean, a long time. I don't know. I. I typically recommend like eat it within six months. I don't know. We didn't touch it, but I don't know. For me, it tasted fine. So So now you're doing all these like super awesome and interesting collaborations. I mean, I walked in and saw Super Mario Brothers. And of course, you know, being the age I am, that was like my jam when I was in high school. So tell me how did, how did those kind of collaborations even like pop into your head? Cause that's, it was so unexpected. Yeah. Well, we have done a lot of collaborations over the years, and I think that's just sort of the current state of the world. I mean, I love seeing brands collaborate with each other because I think it's like one plus one equals three. There's like a magic that happens. So the first like big collaboration we did was with Whispering Angel Rosé. Right. And we did this whole line of rosé infused gummies, and we didn't really know what to expect, but we launched it, and our whole year's production run sold out in literally two hours on our website. So we started a waiting list. The waiting list got up to like 18,000 people. It was just mayhem. It was crazy. And I think that was when we kind of realized the power of collaboration. So so Nintendo, Super Mario Brothers, that's the one we just launched last week, but 
we've done Casamigos, and Tito's. Do they approach you or do you approach them or both? It's it's one or the other. Yeah. Um, I'd say, you know, we tend to be really, really selective. So sure. I have a lot of people approaching us every day, but, you know, we, we have to be very selective about what we pursue. Right. And it's interesting because Super Mario Brothers wouldn't come to mind as something that would be a perfect fit because it's not, you know, another flavor like some of your other collaborations, like with Press Juicery or, you know, Alfred Coffee. But it's so interesting to bring two worlds that kind of don't really have a lot to do with each other and bring them together and make them mean something totally different. Yeah, with Super Mario Brothers and Nintendo, that was like for me a huge packaging moment because yeah. we actually made the box look like the console. I saw. And the little the other box looked like the little controller. So I mean like to me I I I I definitely love candy and I you know beautiful high quality really premium ingredients, but the other side of it is packaging. And right, I mean, that's the part that gets me really excited. And nostalgia is such a thing that touches yes. people now. So obviously people like me who walk in there are like, oh my gosh, have to have this. This yeah. is something from my childhood. In 2014, you hit a pretty big snag. Tell mm-hmm. us what happened. Yeah. So um, all of my life, I think I have had what ultimately became diagnosed as bipolar disorder. And I struggled with it my whole life managing it, but I didn't I didn't know what it was. Like I never went to a psychiatrist or anything like Can that. Can you tell people listening what bipolar is in case they don't know? Yeah. Um, so it's basically means that you kind of cycle between these very high highs and these very low lows. And there's, there's like different degrees of it that different people have. I definitely am on the side that is like, you know, you can find a way to manage it and live your life. I, I know people who have really severe you right. know, issues and, and they have a really hard time living their life. So I'm kind of more in the middle. Mm-hmm. But what that meant for me was, you know, the, the high, high, like the manic sides of it, that was when I would literally work for 36 hours straight. And I felt like I was superhuman. And in a weird way, it like served me well, because, you know, I was working really hard and accomplishing a lot. And shooting up through life very quickly. But the other side, like the very low lows, you know, it's, it, it wasn't like I wake up and I feel sort of sad. It would be like, I wake up and I'm sobbing uncontrollably and I don't know why. Oh. And it just like comes over me. And so it, it didn't get that intense until I started the business. And I think because... Was it the stress and the pressure of the yeah, job that yeah. kind of really played into amplifying Absolutely. it? Yeah, because working at Mattel, I could go home at the end of the day and right. And the stresses of the company are not really your problems. And when it's your company, it's a it's like twenty four seven. And it wasn't even the work hours like that was really intense, but it was the weight of what what it all meant. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're hiring people and you're responsible for other people's livelihoods, it just was a lot on me. And so it got to a point where. I was really, really struggling with it. Like I would have days where I couldn't be in the office because I didn't know if I was just gonna like break into tears suddenly. It's funny. I had a issue of Oprah magazine next to my bed, and it was the it was actually like the mental health issue. And so the cover of it said, "You are not alone," and like that just like I looked over it, and it just was like, "Oh." like, I'm not alone. Other people are struggling with this. So I opened it up. I read the article, you know, it had some really great advice in there about, did you know what you had at that point or not no, yet? I mean, I like, so I mean, I knew enough about psychology and the different things right. to know that that was probably, you know, what it was. But the first thing it said was reach out to loved ones for help. And I think I was so, I don't know if it was scared or embarrassed or whatever, right. but like, I didn't even like talk to Josh about it. Like he just kind of like didn't know what to do because I, you know, I was going through all this stuff. And so I said, Hey, I think I have like a real need here. And he said, let me help you find a great psychiatrist. He like reached out to a bunch of people in his network. We found someone. I went, I was really fortunate that I was able to find a medication that actually helped me a lot of just kind of like bringing the extremes into the center so that I you know, I still like kind of right. have to struggle with it, but it's not as intense as it was yeah. before. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's obviously really important that you're talking about this so openly. And the fact that you have this and you're able to still run a company, I mean, that's, you know, going to be so hopeful for people. I actually haven't mentioned this before on my podcast, but I, for many, many years, um, suffered from severe panic disorder oh, wow. um, in my younger, younger years. There was about two or three years where it was so debilitating that I couldn't leave the house. And, you know, like you, I felt what got me through it is that I wasn't in it alone. And it wasn't until I met and understood that other people had the same issues as me. 
and that they had beat it, that I could, you know, kind of get through it. And I kind of look at it as like, once you have something like, you know, severe panic disorder or severe anxiety, it's a little bit like, this might sound bad, but it's kind of like alcoholism. You're always, you kind of always always have it, but you always have it and you have to be conscious of it and you have to manage it. So now if I, um, I still have anxiety, I just know how to manage it. Yeah. So I think it's really important for everyone listening to understand that, you know, mental illness happens to a lot of women that run companies. I mean, here you are and here I am and we're doing just fine. So well, the stats are incredible. One in five women have a mental health challenge. Yeah. One in 17 have one that is so debilitating that it impacts their day-to-day life. I oh mean, that let, that means like 20% of your listeners have, you know, are Correct. listening to this and are like, oh, okay, I have that. And um, that's why I think it's it's always been stigmatized for so long yeah. and, and it shouldn't be. That's that's stupid. It like, should not be. Why? Um, so I figure if I can at least take the step to talk about it and hopefully inspire other people to be more open. Yeah, I mean, it. listen, you're living proof that you can, you know, manage it and deal with it and have a beautiful, happy life and be successful. And that's what people need to hear because it's people like you that got me through it, just knowing that they could, you know, figure it out. There's always yeah. a way to figure it out. Yeah. So that's really encouraging to hear. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right. So you finally, you know, have kind of come to peace and found your way through dealing with the bipolar disorder in a beautiful way, which is so encouraging. You have had kind of a major kind of shift now in the way that you um, have decided to run this company. Um, So talk about kind of how you made changes in your life once you got things under control. Yeah. You know, and again, this is, it's progress, not perfection, right? So it definitely was taking small steps that start to add up over time. Um, I think, you know, bringing people onto your team who you really can trust and who can really truly take some weight off of you is helpful. I was fortunate to have some really amazing team members who just like, I trust them implicitly. So and important. It's so important and it is so nice to just know somebody has your back. You know, I went from working like 80 to 100 hours a week down to like 70 to 80. I think now I'm pushing 60 to 70, like I'm trying to draw it down. Wow. Um, but there was a long time where you know, Saturday and Sunday, I'd wake up at eight, I'd start working and I'd be working literally through midnight. Like Josh would come check on me. He's like, did you eat? He's like, do you need a water? (laughs) And, uh, but you love it. You're happy when you work. uh, Yeah. I mean, like some of the time I didn't love that, but you know, for the most part, like it was okay. But now I'm just, I'm at a stage where you need, you need to do things that you really enjoy. For me, it's things like just getting out of nature are so important. So I do a lot of hikes now on the weekends that I didn't do before. That just like really re-energizes me. Um, Do you find it hard to kind of stop and go make time for yourself, like going on a hike? Like it's something that you have to like, I mean, you enjoy it once you're there, but like getting there is kind of a tough thing to do just because you love to work so much. Well, and also like sometimes I think like, oh my God, I need to get this done first and then I'll do it. And then you never make time for it if you have that mentality. So I try to make time for that first and then figure out how to do the other things around that. That was a big shift for me because if it was like, oh, whenever I have time, you never have time. You'll never do it unless you prioritize it. Beautiful. So that's, that's been working for you. It has. So that was like what I did in terms of like health and exercise and all these things. I had probably a three year span where I just wasn't exercising. And, you know, I'm a person who was like working out six days a week, super, super healthy. I'm finally getting to a point where I'm not back to that yet, but like maybe four days a week. And that's good enough. Awesome. You also had another incredible moment in your life where you got to um, buy your parents a home. Yeah. Tell us why that was such an important moment. My parents have been amazing parents. And, you know, when you have six kids and one income and, you know, it's that's hard. And I know how hard. Sounds like they worked, both worked really hard. They have. They both worked really hard. And, you know, I was finally in a position where I was able to do that. And I'm not the type of person who, like, let me go buy a Birkin bag and a you know, Lamborghini. Yeah. That's so not me. And in fact, like, I don't even really like want stuff. I sort of find it to be like oppressive to right. have things. You and said you're so, kind of a minimalist. Is that true? I definitely am. Yeah. Like I think all of my memory stuff from my past fits in like two big boxes. Oh, <laughs> that's wow. it. So yeah, if I need to pack up and move, it's actually like really fast. 
I, you know, I just, I wanted to do something that would make their life easier, especially as they're getting to a later stage in life. I did not want to envision my dad working into his eighties and like he was, you know, getting on that path. And I just, again, it, in the grand scheme of things, it was a small thing for me, but thing I know. Yeah. And having a, a great difference. appreciation for, you know, growing up in a working class family yeah. and seeing how hard they hustled to make it totally. happen. Totally. That's such a beautiful thing to be able to give back. Thanks. All right. I have some, what I'm calling rapid fire questions. So okay. just kind of answer them quickly. So what does success mean to you? Well, if I had to say it rapid fire. <laughs> you can tell me the long okay. version on this one. Okay. You okay. Um, uh, you know, I think success is when you realize that you are just happy with who you are and your shortcomings. It's not achieving something. It's not material possessions. It's not a salary. It's when you can sit there and be like, I'm good and I'm happy. What keeps you up at night now? Like everything. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the stage that we're at in the business, we have a lot of, you know, we have a big team. We have a few hundred people who work on our team. And I really want to make sure that we're creating an environment where people love coming to work. Who do you consider your competition? We don't have like a direct competitor. In that I, was, yeah, I was trying to try to figure it out. Yeah, I was like, I'm not sure. There's not like someone doing luxury candy. There's plenty mm. of people doing luxury chocolate, but right. we sort of see ourselves like as different from that. So I'd say um, our competition is maybe like a bottle of champagne. Yeah. So if you're giving a gift, like, do you do that? Yeah, or you're, do you you're competing with other gifts. Yeah, yeah. So we Which look at so interesting. other gifts. Oh my gosh, it's really interesting to yeah. be competing against people that are kind of aren't in your category. Well, I love Netflix. They said our competition is sleep, and we're winning. Right. <laughs> so, so you have like, a similar situation. Right. Exactly. I love that. Okay. If you could completely switch careers, is there something else you'd rather be doing? I would go to culinary school, and I would probably have like a very small restaurant. Oh right. Yeah. Okay, so it's kind of related. Sort of in the food-ish business, right? What's your biggest strength and your biggest weakness? I'd say strength, probably work ethic, like we talked before. I think weakness, um, I could be, you know, I could set really high expectations. And I think sometimes I might be hard to work for because I really do try to push for perfection. Okay. Um, but I'm trying to not have that be such a, <laughs> such a big thing anymore. So tell me, um, what is your leadership style? You know, I think great leadership comes when you can create an environment where you can bring in someone who really is an expert and you can trust them implicitly and really empower them. And I think it really does go back to the person who is in that role. It goes back to trust. So the team members who I really trust, it's it's kind of like you're running the show, you're telling me what to do. Sometimes though you, you know, you have a hire who you don't have that with and that's where I think it gets a little, you know, more challenging, but okay. I try to do my best to develop and coach and mentor. But sometimes I think you just have to also realize it's not going to get there and you have to be diligent about making a change. Okay. Tell us what's next for Sugarfina. Is there a pressure to kind of like in, to innovate? Obviously collaborations are a big part of what's happening right now in the future. And it's funny because almost every woman who has sat down here, not every, but a lot of them have sat down and said to me, my company is a tech company first, huh. but you know, they're selling something. And so is there a pressure to figure out how to make candy into a tech company? I know it's a weird question, but it feels like there's a lot of pressure to move towards how to make everything a tech based solution or company. I think the people who say that are trying to raise money with Silicon Valley. And so that becomes like the lens through which they frame their company, which can be very successful. Right. I don't think of us as a tech company okay, at all. Good. I, I, I think of ourselves. I think of ourselves as an experience company. Okay. I, like I wouldn't say we're a candy company. I'd say we're all about creating like experiences, whether it's gifts or treating yourself. I'm so happy to hear that. I think we need more experienced companies. All right, so we talked about what's next for Sugarfina. I mean, you're obviously somebody who is, you know, very goal-oriented. Um, so what's next? Are you going to become a medical doctor? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, you know, with Sugarfina, I think global expansion is a big thing for us. We opened in Hong Kong last year. We're opening in Mexico right. City this year. Beautiful. So continuing that. Right. For me personally, I mean, look, I'm sure I'm not going to be doing this forever. I definitely am going to be doing this for a while longer. You know, I think at some point, I'd, I'd, like I mentioned, I'd love to go to culinary school. I think that's the stage of life when I think I'll be doing something a little lower pressure. Obviously, I know running a kitchen is high pressure, but it's a different kind of high pressure. I'm looking back to like 
doing something physical with my hands versus all my brain. Beautiful. And give us um, some actionable advice for those who right now are thinking of starting a company, which as we all know, entrepreneurship is on the rise. What's your actionable advice for people that have an idea and how to just, what's that first step? How do you make it happen? Yeah. First and foremost, I would say really take the second to like do the self-analysis. Like entrepreneurship sounds super sexy on paper. It looks really cool. It's really hard. And there's a lot of times where it's just really unpleasant. I mean, there's great moments, but every entrepreneur I know is like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And some days I wake up and think I can't do it. Yeah, I think I think it's an important point. I think, you know, once a company kind of makes it and is established, like things change and there's still challenges. But that those moments, that time leading up to it is kind of hell. Yeah. It's kind of hell. But the the flip side is that of that is people like you and me kind of thrive off challenges and yeah. figuring it out and working yeah. through it. And, you know, there's there's something about it. So if you don't like challenges, if you don't like getting bad news like almost every day um, and figuring out how to flip it on its head – do not start your own business. Yeah, or go work at a startup. And that's the advice I give right. anybody who thinks they're going to become good. an entrepreneur, yeah. if, especially if they haven't worked very much up until then, yeah. is go work there. You're going to learn so much. You're going to be able to take away things to start your own business. If you go blind into your own new business, it, it's just, it's hard and you won't have the tools that you need to be successful. Okay. Any strong female role models in your life that have really impacted you? Anyone who's really helped you or mentor you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the people who are kind of I look up to. So like the Sarah Blakely's and the Ali Webbs of the sure. world who I just think have, have hustled so hard. They've had a great idea, but they've hustled so hard to bring it to life. In my life today, I have so many entrepreneur, women entrepreneur friends, and it's so great to just get coffee and like vent because right, yeah. <laughs> it's lonely at the it top is, right is, yeah. and you know they're just wonderful inspiration beautiful okay well i think you have answered all of my questions i'm so happy to meet you in person i'm so inspired by you and your story and what you've done and just walking into your store is pure happiness if if you have not walked into a Sugarfina store, you have to, have to, have to find one. You also sell in other stores as well, like Nordstrom's. Is that correct? Yeah, like Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Neiman Marcus. Beautiful. Yeah. So you have a kind of a, a multi-faceted multi yeah. distribution strategy. So you're also yes. online, yes. right? People can buy your products online. Yes. And I just want to thank you for bringing you know, happiness because candy is happiness and you've done it in such an interesting way. You truly have disrupted an industry. So thank you for well, that. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. All right. And one last question. If somebody has never tried your product before and they are to be introduced to Sugarfina for the first time, what candy should they try? So my favorite is peach Bellini. If you imagine like a gummy peach ring, imagine the absolute best gourmet version of that, and that's peach Bellini. Beautiful. Okay. I have to go try that now. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here today. 